0: Hello and welcome to Mum Property with John Pidgeon. Today I have an outstanding guest. She has been a regular of the show in the past. She appeared on my Solvair Online Academy. A special guest talked wills and estates from Aubrey Brown, the Managing Director, Anna Cruikshank. How are you, Anna?
2: I'm well, thanks, John, and thank you so much for having me on again.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Now, there's been plenty of questions in the Facebook community, so thank you so much for reaching out and asking your question. Hopefully, we'll get to them all, but apologies if we can't. The big one for me today is should we buy our investment properties in a trust? So I've been getting a lot of that lately and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that today, Anna. So without further ado, let's get into it. Now, we'll keep that one right to the end so that uh, it just keeps everyone on their toes and listening. But uh, (laughs) as I said, thank you. Uh, You've been operating since 1994. So some of our listeners might not have even been born back (laughs) then. (laughs) then That's not saying you're old by any means. It just means we've got a young, energetic listening group here. So... You've got a lot of experience in a lot of areas. I
2: do. I um, think I've pretty much done everything at one time or another in my um, time in the profession, which, yeah, it's coming up for 30 years, but I hope I don't look like I've been doing it for 30
0: years. You do not, no. You're in our office today and you definitely don't look that old. So, I said to the group, interviewing a lawyer for the property show, any specific questions or topics for the property nerds? We're not all nerds out there for property, but we are passionate about our uh, investment properties. So let's kick off with a quite a straightforward one. Well, maybe not. From Brad Hall, are BFA slash prenups worth or still worthwhile or slash stand up in court? So what Brad's saying is are they worth the paper they're written on? (laughs)
2: Look, that's a really good question to start with, John. And Brad, thank you so much for sending that one in. Binding financial agreement is the legal description of an agreement that can be entered into in three different circumstances before people get married, during their marriage, or sometimes they're used when a marriage has come to an end as a way to set out who gets what is... um, we walk away. So the prenup one is open to challenge. So no lawyer is ever going to draft a prenup for you and put their hand on their heart and say, I'm giving you a 100% guarantee that this will stand up no matter what comes. The key things with a prenup that first of all, the parties have to give full financial disclosure to each other. So there's no use in looking into a prenup if you are not prepared to lay all of your cards on the table with your partner as part of the process. The second thing is that it's important you're using a really experienced lawyer to do the prenup because the technical requirements are very tricky and very particular. And if a technical requirement is not ticked off, then um, the document can be open to challenge. But the circumstances in which a prenup otherwise can be challenged, primarily it's if there has been a significant change in circumstances. That wasn't contemplated by the document since the parties entered into the document. Having children in particular um, is a situation where a prenup can be challenged. The court will put the interests of the children above any pre-existing agreement. And the other thing is the longer the relationship, if you've been in a relationship with somebody for 40 years and the prenup was particularly restrictive, there's more likelihood that a court may say this is just simply unfair and we're going to overturn it. So yes, prenups are worthwhile, but um, make sure that you're getting advice from an experienced family lawyer before you go ahead with one
0: yeah and that's great advice in itself so by Brad saying are they still worthwhile obviously he's hearing out there in the in the real world that a lot of them aren't worth the paper that they're written on however they may be a used or written up by an inexperienced party or lawyer and b the The participants may not have been fully transparent from the beginning.
2: That's exactly right. And um, the other thing with the prenup is, you know, there still needs to be an element of fairness to the arrangement. If you're looking to protect assets you had before you went into the relationship, but um, you're being fair about the way assets are dealt with during the relationship, you're going to have a much better outcome than if you say everything before and everything during is mine, irrespective of who contributes what, whether we have kids or anything else on the way through. And, you know, if you're going into a relationship and the relationship is a short term relationship, then you're going to be happy, I think, that you ended into a prenup before you went down that path.
0: Okay. All right. So tell the truth and just get along with people is basically the, the message there.
2: Well, you know what they say, John, happy wife, happy life.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Let's stick to that. Uh Christopher, and then followed up by Nick, have expressed some interest in title insurance. So Nick says, uh, keen to hear about title insurance. I read an article recently about a couple who, after buying the house, couldn't transfer the name due to a caveat. Five years later, court has found they don't own the house. Would title insurance have protected them if they had it? That's a a, a nasty finding.
2: (laughs) Look, I'm familiar with that case, um, Christopher. I did follow it in the media because I found it from a legal perspective quite intriguing and those people found themselves in a very, very unusual, specific set of circumstances that would be unlikely to arise very often, if at all, again. What title insurance is designed to do is title insurance is designed to compensate a purchaser if there are defects with the property or with the title to the property after settlement has occurred. The key things um, for title insurance to be effective, they've request that the lawyers, because it's usually your lawyer who might recommend it to you and arrange it, are transparent about any unusual circumstances up front, because the insurance company wants to assess the insurance based on full transparency. With some of the things that title insurance covers, there are limits on how much compensation you will be paid. So, one of those limits that I have looked into and actually spoken to one of the big operators in the marketplace about is the limit on compensation in the event that there are illegal building works. So, One of the things that is becoming more difficult to ascertain with councils in the very short cooling off periods that we have in some states, including New South Wales, is is everything there approved by council? Has it been built in accordance with the plans and it's all above board? And that's because councils are short staffed. It's difficult to access their records. So title insurance, if there is something unusual or something you're concerned about with the property is a way to overcome that. People are also doing less pre-property searches like surveys because title insurance is an alternative to that. With the building the defective building works piece, at the moment, the limit's about $150,000. So if you bought a house and council said this entire house is not approved, you've got to knock it down, it's illegal and it can't be built because you're in a flood zone, then title insurance compensation may not adequately... Compensate you for your loss. However, in the vast majority of cases, if there is a claim for something like um, the property size differed from um, what you understood, or there's been a bathroom put downstairs that isn't allowed to be there, councils become aware of it and they want that rectified, the fence is in the wrong place, then certainly in those circumstances, having title insurance in place can give you peace of mind and. Can can help you out if something like that pops up after you've settled.
0: Okay, sure. So, in layman's terms, a, a common one is the the good old pergola or the deck out the back or the. Yes. So we we come and inspect a house. It's uh it's it's been noted on the contract that this particular part of the house hasn't been approved by council yet. It's here and it's functioning. So is that where you would? take out title insurance on the basis that it isn't improved? or
2: You would have to notify the insurer, you would have to disclose to them that right. it had been disclosed to you that w- that was not approved and they would then consider whether they would give you that insurance and they might put some restrictions or reduce the level of insurance because of the fact that you were aware of the defect sure. before you purchased and that's sort of to be contrasted to you bought it and then you find out after settlement that the deck wasn't approved and it's become a problem.
0: Yeah. Okay. So title insurance is probably not going to apply if you're aware of something from the outset. It's like going and get health insurance when you've already got a. Dicey
2: Precisely. Mm,
0: okay, that's great. And the jury's out as to whether title insurance is worthwhile with for a, a lot of investors I talk to, because it's a one-off premium, isn't it? And it
2: is a one-off premium.
0: So it might be five six hundred dollars, for example, that you pay upfront and and then never again. A little that's bit right. Like stamp duty. So for me, it, a, a peace of mind. It's it's definitely worthwhile. But for others, it's like well, yeah, I'll. I'll run the the gauntlet on that, I suppose.
2: And certainly the approach that we take with our clients is we do a bit of a risk assessment with them based on what pre-purchase due diligence we can get done for them and also whether there are any flags in the contract. One of the big flags for me, and it's certainly something that's common on the Central Coast, is um, two-storey properties where it is... Apparent, or you would suspect that downstairs was originally a garage, so a non habitable area, and it's being turned into a bathroom or a second flat or something like that. So, we look for those types of things and consider them to be flags when we're advising clients and advising them on title insurance.
0: Okay. So, on a matter, so not probably relative to title insurance, but if you found that that was an unapproved dwelling and it wasn't listed in the contract. How do you navigate your way through that as potentially the new owner? Is it something where, okay, we get a discount on the price um, in a hot market that might not be possible? How do you So if
2: you know, I'll start with because I can see several of the questions here sort of relate to what can I do after settlement if I discover there's a problem. Different states apply this approach to different levels, but in New South Wales, we probably have the stricter starting point, which is let the buyer beware. So the obligation on vendors to disclose problems is fairly limited. It has expanded a bit over recent years, but the legal position is let the buyer beware. The buyer must conduct due diligence to discover any defects before they commit to purchase the property. If you haven't exchanged and you become aware that there's a legal building work, What you then do is you look at two things. Can I rectify that defect and what will it cost me? What would it cost me to get council to approve this work if that, in fact, can be done? Because getting retrospective approval from councils can be difficult. In the alternative, do I need to negotiate a discount on the purchase price if I still want to proceed to compensate me for the risk that at some point I might have to undo this work. So I might have to demolish the deck or demolish the pergola or going to more serious sort of sets of circumstances. I might have to pull the kitchen and um, everything out of the granny flat and convert it back to a garage, which means I'm not going to be able to get the second income that I was um, counting on. I've incurred the cost of doing that work. And I've also devalued the property because it was worth more with two incomes. So uh, it's something that needs to be really carefully considered and a $5,000 deck Mm. might be neither here nor there compared to bigger issues that can flow from that and how you might negotiate around it or look for a different property.
0: Yeah, it's a really tricky one because in that negotiation process, if you were Start making phone calls to council, and then them giving you a response, and then a final—I uh, suppose—a finding on what needs to be done. The the property's been and gone, isn't it? Absolutely,
2: so. it has. Mm. And you know, there are certain councils where we can say to purchasers, make an appointment, go in, and ask them to show you the file for the property. And you have a look at the approvals and the plans attached to the approvals and check that it's all okay. But certainly um, a lot of the councils just aren't able to accommodate that or can't accommodate it in the timeframes we need at the moment, which means title insurance is a good alternative.
0: Awesome. All right. One more before we take a break. Harry Murray says, best person to see when making a joint venture contract. And will they help you with the recommendations when making one? Wanting to get some ground rules before going in on a joint venture?
2: Okay. That's a fantastic um, question, Harry. And it's actually something I've done a lot of work in over the years. So joint ventures, first of all, a lawyer helps you with that contract. Secondly, the key thing to joint venture is understanding the process that is going to underpin the joint venture. For example, are you building something? Are you subdividing? What are you actually doing? And what are the different parts of the process involved? And who's going to be responsible for what? Some joint ventures, it's just about financial responsibility. Who's going to pay for what? Because third party contractors are going to actually do the work. In other joint ventures, you might have one of the parties or all of the parties. have different skills that can be contributed towards the success of the joint venture. For example, I've done joint ventures where one of the parties did all of the civil earthworks because that was what they did. So being really clear on who's going to do what, but then also if one of the parties is going to provide certain skills and services, How are they going to be compensated for that? Are they going to be compensated at market rate? Are they going to not be compensated? Is that part of their um, contribution? Then we move on to what happens with the profit of the joint venture. Are we doing the joint venture to retain the asset and hold on to it as a profit making or an investment outcome? Or are we going to sell it? There are ways we can use joint venture agreements if, for example, we are going to do a subdivision or do a strata, and the joint venturers are going to take certain units or lots and just go their separate ways to minimise stamp duty, so they can be a good tool to use in that regard. Then the other thing that we need to contemplate is what happens if somebody wants out before the joint venture comes to an end? or somebody dies. So they're quite complicated in one sense, um, because there's a lot of things we need to work through. But a well-drafted joint venture agreement, you know, for, again, lawyers who work in that area, we do them all the time. And we would absolutely guide you through the different points that you need to be negotiating and putting in there to make sure it covers all eventualities.
0: Yeah, it's great. And look, they're a personal favourite of mine. I've done plenty of them. I've found being unskilled like myself is an advantage because we come in 50-50 none of us are contributing with our with our hands and it's just financially 50-50 down the middle and split the profits and split the expenses and but it's not always as simple as that but understanding why would we do a joint venture well generally when we talk about it with clients it's a case of well we've got a lack of deposit funds or we've got a lack of servicing meaning that we need to be able to lend more money from the banks the only way we can do that is to bring in a, a second or a third party talk to us a little bit about maybe just just quickly on the the entity structure because coming in with personal names also has its um, its pros and cons so just in and and we're going to talk about it in more detail after the break but uh, maybe a, a trust structure in that sense
2: Yeah, so um, when it comes to ownership of property, we basically have three choices. We can own property in our personal names, we can own property in a company, or we can own property in a trust structure. And which of those we um, choose is not just a really straightforward decision. We need to have a look at what the short-term and long-term intentions of the parties are. We also have to do a bit of a risk analysis of where does the risk sit in terms of what we're doing together, but also where does the risk sit for the individuals? Because for example, if you were looking at going into some sort of arrangement with somebody who was a specialist doctor and carries a risk of getting sued in their life away from what you're doing together, having things in personal names with them might not be the best choice. There are also tax advantages of companies and trusts and things that we need to work through depending upon what your long-term and short-term plans are.
0: So so in short, and we'll talk about it after the break, is uh, our accountant, our lawyer, And our financier, the bank, need to be all on the same page before we we set this up.
2: Absolutely. And ideally, before you go looking for a property.
0: Correct. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back and go deeper into this whole trust thing. Okay, so let's expand on this, Anna, um, because I'm getting so much of this. People thinking outside the square, which is which is awesome. Uh, thinking, okay. There's a few of us here we, we might have siblings we might have friends we might have family in general let's go and set up a trust and build a portfolio so there's a question here from Mitch that says uh, hoping to get your thoughts I'm thinking of setting up a trust with my siblings to use as an investment vehicle over a 20 to thirty year time frame to purchase investment property so it's just not a joint venture for for two years or three years do a development and move on this is a 20 to 30 year time frame so a bit of background about Mitch: in the late twenties, have secured a government job. Downside, is potential for income growth is pretty low. Three siblings who are all earning substantial incomes who are or are fast tracked to that stage. Only issue is due to their hours working or being a business owner, they're not really interested in investing or have the time to look into it. My thought is creating a trust where we put each or we each put the same amount of money into the trust every two years and use it to purchase an investment property. We do this every two years for fifteen years or so, and then sit on it for 10 to 15 years. Is this a sound idea? What are the legal and tax considerations for something like this? So this is a really common one. Like one of the siblings is really keen. The others have maybe the money or the servicing. They haven't got time. They're like, okay, little bro, go and do your thing. We'll support it, but let's get it get it right first.
2: Okay. So there are two types of trusts that are commonly used in property investment and also in the family space. The first is commonly called a family trust um, and we lawyers characterise it as a discretionary trust and I would not recommend that type of trust to Mitch even though he's dealing with family.
0: There you go. That's legal advice right there.
2: (laughs) A family trust or a discretionary trust works on the basis that the income of the trust is distributed across a class of family members So usually that class will be grandparents, parents, children, siblings, wide class of family um, members, but in the discretion of the trustee. So the reason that family trusts were sort of becoming more and more common and popular was because if you had income coming into a family trust, you could pay income to your wife who might've been in a lower tax bracket than you. You could pay income to your children who might have had no um, other income. So you could use it to distribute wealth through your family and minimise tax. Of course, the government said, we don't like this idea. We're going to start to narrow the opportunities for family trust to be used as um, tax reduction vehicles. They are still useful, particularly if you have a spouse who is not working or is in a low tax bracket. You can, in a minimal environment, still distribute some money to the kids. But the issue with it is it's completely discretionary. So nobody has a fixed interest or a share in that. So even though it's got the word family in it, in Mitch's circumstances, I would be recommending a unit trust or a fixed trust where each of his siblings have an agreed share. Their entitlement to the income is paid every year in accordance with that share. If an asset is sold or all of the assets are sold and the trust is wound up, their entitlement on the winding up or the sale of the asset is in accordance with that share. So it gives, I think, the outcome that's the more intended outcome here. Um, One of the key things with this type of agreement between family members or friends or investors who want to come together and form an investment group is that you have to have an agreement in place setting out if one of you wants out before the others do, what does that actually look like um, and how does that happen, which is something that we lawyers commonly assist with.
0: Mm, Okay. No, that's awesome. So the discretionary trust out because I could have a blue with you and you could say at your discretion, John, you're out we're not giving. Well, you I a,
2: wouldn't even kick you out. I just wouldn't give you any no income profit. anymore no. <laughs> if I was the trustee, yeah. or if you died, I'd say, "No, I'm not interested yeah. in making sure your family's looked after." Yeah,
0: so it's at um, your discretion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, talk to us then, uh, and fast forward the process. Mitch has gone ahead with his siblings and set this up um, with a in, in a unit trust they're equal shareholders and they, they get equal distribution and equal input, etc. What if one of them, for example, needs asset protection? So they, they might be – one of them might be in a – I suppose, a high profile industry that's open to litigation, they don't want to be anywhere near the the title, so to speak. How do we structure things like that?
2: So they won't be near the title. And this is one of the reasons why we use trusts rather than our personal names. Because if we've got all four of us on the title in our personal names, and one of us gets sued for some reason, then the property is sort of open to – or their share in the property is open to the litigation – The unit trust gives a layer of protection, but the units held in that unit trust, if they're in a personal name, are still exposed because they're an asset of the individual. This is where those family trusts come into play, because if we own them in a family trust, then that can give us another layer of protection to say, I individually don't own that that 25% share, of that unit trust. It sits in a family trust. In the discretion of the beneficiary, I might get some money every year, but I have no legal entitlement to expect that.
0: Sure. And you wouldn't be a director of that family trust?
2: No. No. So ideally, the person who is at risk should not have control of the trust, Mm. because control is an indicator that it's legally just being put in place to make sure people you owe money to miss out. So again, making sure that these types of structures are properly considered and set up at the front end is um, important. One of the other things to know about trusts, to be compared to companies is the law requires that a trust distributes its profit every year to the beneficiaries or the unit holders in that trust so a trust can needs to be thought about if you are going to want to hold profit back and not distribute all of the profit in the year that it's made so again that's why this is a bit of a individualized every situation needs to be considered in full on its merits to work out what's best as a, a structure of when people are going into something.
0: Mm, yeah. Look, I, I think they're a fantastic structure. I, it's a one, and I've done a few in the past, that give us, the, the I think, the best of both worlds. It's it's fine with lending or it has been fine with for lending in the past. gives her a layer of asset protection. It gives us flexibility and people can come and go as they, as they choose to a certain extent, can't they? And
2: one of the things, um, certainly in New South Wales, is you can transfer units in a property trust, provided that the property the trust owns is below the threshold without paying stamp duty. So again, gives you some flexibility around things like that as well.
0: And uh, Mitch mentioned uh, tax considerations. Those tax considerations from a A tax level is is based on your personal income, It
2: is. So trusts don't pay tax. They don't pay capital gains tax. The beneficiary or the unit holder in the trust pays tax based on their share of the profit that was paid down to them. And and it's individualised depending upon who's earning what and um, which tax threshold they're on at the time.
0: Okay. So Mitch has had a chat with his siblings, said, yeah, let's do this. We're excited about this. Let's go and uh, understand how much we can borrow. Let's map out a 20 to 30 year plan. Um, Let's get this first property underway. We may use a unit trust, What about the subsequent purchases after that? Are they still using that same unit trust or are they saying, no, let's set a different unit trust up every time? Look,
2: the purpose of setting up a special purpose vehicle and when you might do that, um, developers will do it because when they've finished a development, they want to close down any liability and not bring it forward to the next development by using the same entity. If you're bringing different people in, and they're only going to be associated with one asset, not all of the assets in the trust. You might look at having another trust set up because it gets really tricky trying to have different classes of units attached to different assets. But there can be a benefit to just keeping it in the same trust if we're all aligned as to what we're doing and it's the same people, because you can easily start to leverage off the equity that you're building in the trust. So You know, pros and cons as to which way you would go, again, depending upon the um, short and the long term purpose of the trust. But if it's just four of you and you're just looking to grow a portfolio, then and there's no risk following the sale and purchase of assets, then you know, you might very well just leave it and use the same trust to acquire the properties.
0: Okay, great. So fast forward, they're in their 20s. Uh, I'm really playing a case study out here because <laughs> I, I think it's a great topic. We All of them find partners and those partners – enter into each other's lives and all of a sudden there's a trust set up that's been running for five, six years, coupled with this first question at the start of the show about the prenups, how does all that work? Do they automatically come in into that trust? Um, How does it work now that they're married? Uh, What are the implications there?
2: So the interest in the trust is an asset of the person who has the interest in the trust. It doesn't automatically create an interest for the partner Mm -hmm. that would have to be a concerted decision where you transferred units to that partner with the consent of your other unit holders to bring them into the trust that's why a family trust as the unit holder can be useful because then you and your discretion can um, transfer things to the spouse without it having to um, come into play with the rest of the unit holders. But the asset, if you were to separate, goes into the pool of assets that's considered for the family law. Mm.
0: Okay. All right. So a bit to think about there, Mitch. Fantastic vision to want to grow a, a big portfolio with your family. There's just a lot of questions that need to be answered first. And I would think everyone needs to sit down uh, at a round table and a glass of wine and just nut it out uh, the long-term implications of whether this is going to work or not. But even if it works for the first one and they go their separate ways after that, really no love loss in a lot of cases is a one last one before we finish up, Anna, and we get it a lot. And a lot of it is, I suppose, uh, misinterpreted or just defaulted when we buy a property. But it's the whole tenants in common versus joint tenants when we're buying with our property husband or wife or partner or brother or sister. So, there's two of us buying a property together. Talk to us about what the contract defaults to and the difference between the two.
2: Okay. So, in New South Wales – there are boxes on the front of the contract that um, need to be ticked to elect whether you're going to be joint tenants or tenants in common. And in New South Wales, the way that the contract works is if in doubt, the one in capitals applies. So it's just something that you really need to be looking at and making sure you're making the election yourself and not letting some default position in the contract take over. Joint tenants means if one of the joint tenants dies, the property automatically goes to the other joint tenant, irrespective of what their will says. So it was always the common choice for a husband and wife. They would choose to be joint tenants so that if husband died, the property automatically goes to the wife. Noting that you can't override that by making a will and saying, I consider that I own 50% of this property and I want to leave it to X, Y, and Z. Tenants in common is more like a business arrangement where you own nominated shares in the property. So friends, investors, siblings will commonly use tenants in common and your share in that property is dealt with on your death in accordance with what your will says. So with joint tenants, people will start to think, oh my God, that's a big decision to make. How do I know what's going to happen in five years or 20 years and that I'll still be happy with that decision? You can change that and you can change it without paying stamp duty. You can do what we call sever the joint tenancy which is serving a um, notice on the titles office and also on your joint tenant advising them that you are converting it to tenants in common. And what the law will do is the law will say, if you were joint tenants, we are going to make you tenants in common, 50-50. So you'll end up with a 50% share each. Then you can leave that share to whomever you want and you will and deal with it individually. So we will often do that when parties have separated. The first thing we'll do is go and sever the joint tenancies. And also, if otherwise circumstances have changed, we will sever the joint tenancy. One of the key things in making that decision about um, tenants in common and joint tenants is also know that a tenant in common can apply to the Supreme Court to force the sale of the property if they end up having a disagreement with their co-owners who also own shares in the property. So, sometimes that can be a good protective measure. Um, One of the things, and without wanting to put you out there um, on display, John, you and I have done co-owners agreements in property over time. So, it's really important if you are tenants in common in a property that there's an agreement between you all, as to what happens if one of you wants out or if one of you dies and that type of thing. Just to sort of tie off on tenants in common, tenants in common is also often an estate planning tool that we use when we've got second marriages and blended families and those families are coming together and the mum and dad want to make sure that on their death, their share in a property that has been acquired is going to go and be protected and go to their kids.
0: Awesome. Okay. So if we're out there saying, okay, I better check my title and see what the arrangement is, and and we realise that it's it's joint tenants and we actually want it to be tenants in common... We simply fill out some paperwork, get all parties to sign, and I think from memory it's like under a thousand dollars to get that yep, done yep, and and, and change
2: it over yep. that's right. And there's no stamp duty, provided that you are happy that if there are two of you on the title and you're severing the joint tenancy, it's gonna be fifty fifty. Yes. If you wanna change that percentage of ownership, then you will go to 50-50 and then there will be stamp duty if you want to transfer 10% from someone to make it 60-40 for example sure but you can't go from tenants in common to joint tenants without paying stamp duty
0: oh that hurts <laughs>
2: <So> <laughs> you've got to be you've got to be really yeah. careful about that choice
0: and it just comes back to the fact that you need to have good people in your corner before we go and make these decisions and go and buy these properties. And and like Mitch asked and like others have asked, like the good questions that we ask beforehand can potentially save us thousands and thousands of dollars, but also save us a lot of headaches and worry as well.
2: Absolutely. And look, we love it when clients come and sit down with us and say, this is what we're thinking of doing. Can you help us understand all of the things we need to set up everything we need to do before we actually start to look for property, Mm. as opposed to people who have come to us, they've either signed contracts in the wrong name And realise that they wanted to do it differently or alternatively, they've found a property, there are two other buyers and sometimes that compromises the flexibility of making the best choice because you've put the cart before the horse. And I actually had a situation recently where clients were wanting to use self-managed super to buy a property Found their dream property, hadn't even started thinking about setting up a super fund. So, by the time they're talking to us, talking to an accountant, mm. they're told you're going to have to set up a fund, you're going to have to get a certificate confirming it's a complying fund, yeah, and um, do all of that. Do a bear trust, then you're going to have to roll over your super from your retail funding yeah, to this. Yeah,
0: six weeks they were yeah.
2: they were they lost their property.
0: Yeah, wow. Well. Yeah, Cart before the horse, or horse before the cart, whichever you think is uh, is right. But yeah. So, John,
2: we've talked about a lot of really general things today and answered some questions, and I just want to highlight to you guys that. They're generalised answers. They're not specific answers. Um, we spend a lot of time delving into the detail to be able to properly advise you. So I don't want any of you running out today saying, that's it, I'm going yeah. to set up five unit trusts tomorrow and buy <coughs> 10 properties. Um, you know, you need to getting very specific, specialized advice before you do anything. But, you know, this is the sort of stuff that lawyers are dealing with every day and yeah. we love to help you.
0: Yeah, that's great. And and obviously you guys do conveyancing for property purchase in New South Wales, Queensland and Vic?
2: And the ACT.
0: And the ACT, okay. So we'll put the link in the show notes for that. But talking about the tenants in common, joint tenants, the options, et cetera, is that something that's covered under the conveyancy sort of work that you do or is that something? Yep, yep, it is. So
2: and um, look, if you've done an agent exchange and they've not ticked a box or they've ticked the wrong box, we work together, um, lawyers do, to mm. go and sort that out. Yeah, sure. Um, so don't panic and think, oh, my God, I have um, don't know what I'm doing and I'm here to exchange mm. a contract right now. But again, ideally, we provide a service where if you're looking at buying a property, we will do a really quick turnaround on a contract review for you before you exchange um, so you don't miss out on the property but you're going in there being feeling confident that you've, you know, made the
0: right the choices. Road. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's been a pleasure, Anna. Some awesome topics there um, and, and really great questions, to be honest. Like it's just, and there's plenty there that we continue to uh, answer going forward. So we may have to get you back on the show if that's okay by you. Uh, but no, pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks for coming in. And for everyone else, just continue to pump those questions to us because um, they're awesome stuff. Uh, They're awesome questions and uh, apologies that we can't always – uh, facilitate every state of Australia, but we, we do our best. So if you've got someone that's from another state that you want to get in and, and, and chat to us on the show about something that's different, feel free to reach out to us. If you need any help, just go to sort your money out, forward slash get help. I think it is Anna, but in um, any case, you know where it's at. I'm John Pigeon, and you've been listening to My Millennial Property.
1: We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
0: Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education.
1: That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps.
0: I've created the Air Online Academy. open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space.
1: And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course.
0: Follow the links in the
1: show notes to sign up and get started today.